You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 181 of So You Want to Be a Writer. Now, in this mini-sode, I am joined with the wonderful Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, I'm all right. That's uh, yeah, good. I'm okay. I am just, yeah, on a, you know, I think it's one of those fair to middling kind of days, so I think okay. that we'd probably just leave it at that, yeah. Have, what have about you? you? Back, are you have fair you to middling? Have you into any cars lately? I have not. Okay. Well, All right. well, that's good to know. No more. Shall we say no? No, no further more. cars well, have been damaged in the school on the school run, so that's a good start, right? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. Well, yeah. neither have I. Now, in this mini-sode, well, in our mini-sodes, we usually listen. No, we don't listen. We we answer listeners' <laughs> questions and also sometimes have mini interviews. So we have one of each today. So let's get stuck straight into it. Our first question is from Kate. And Kate has said, hi, Val and Al. I was listening to your podcast this week and Al was talking about the various author talks she was doing at schools and in other venues. I was wondering whether on one of your podcasts you might be able to elaborate a bit on how she develops content for these talks, tips on engaging with children and on how to promote your talks and get an income stream out of it. Wow, that's like a 10-hour answer, isn't it, Al? That is a 10-hour answer. We could pretty much – we should probably, like, develop a whole new course in that. Though. Yes. Um, so, yes, it is a very big question. It is a very big question. So I, I will address it a little because – but we don't have 10 hours for me to go into all details. Um, I will say that the before I ever did a single course, um, I did a uh, – sorry, before I ever did a single talk, I did do a course with the amazing Deborah Abila. Um, who did, who we, we sort of, who went through how she went about doing a, a children's author talk. And I think um, it is definitely worth doing something like that because it is a very, I understand, Kate, it is a very, very daunting, daunting thing to do um, mm. for the first time that you ever do it uh, because there is that whole thing of not knowing quite what's what's what. So I, I would say uh, my, my first tip would be to go and actually have a look at what other authors are doing in some way, shape or form. So if there's a, even even if you do even if it's a library talk um, or if it's a bookshop talk mm. or whatever, go and see what other authors are actually including in their talks, how they go about it, um, you know whether they're dressing up in fairy wings, which some do or not. Um, I personally don't because it's not really relevant to me. But if it's relevant to you and your book, it might be a thing. I saw the fabulous Zanny Arnott doing a um, a. Um, Zanny Louise, actually. Zanny Louise. Zanny yeah. Louise, yes. Doing a, um, a, an author talk wearing a – she had like a 
a little kind of hat thing on that had bear ears on it. And she looked amazing because her book, of course, is about a bear. Um, so, you know, go and see what other people are doing. If you can get along to a school talk, if there's if there's authors coming to your kid's school or somewhere in your neighbourhood, go and see what they're doing because author talks come in all shapes, sizes and variations um, and it takes a little while. It's like writing a book. It takes a little while to work out how it is that you go about doing it, how you do yours. Um, so that would be my first um, my first tip. My second tip would be to keep it relatively simple. I think that yes. it can, you know, things can get very, very complicated very, very quickly depending on the number of children that you have involved in your author talk. I do several different uh, workshops and I also have a general author talk that I take to schools um, and I'm actually working on a new one at the moment because I have a new book coming out, you know, in September so that I will need to slightly change things up a little bit for that. Oh, um, so, you know, but you, you want to, you want to basically keep it as simple as possible you have to remember like the the largest number of kids I've spoken to was about 360 and it is not easy that's a lot it's a lot it's not easy to hold the attention of that many kids for you know 45 minutes to an hour um so how old were they oh they ranged in age from grade I think it was four to six wow that's hard yeah it was it was like it was the second or third talk that I ever did and I have to say, it was a little bit like, I, I think once you've done something like that and it's gone okay, it gives you an amazing amount of confidence to think mm. that you can manage that many kids all at once. Because um, that, that particular author talk I do is just me and my books. Like there's no, I don't even have a PowerPoint for that one. Like it's a really straightforward kind of, you know, chat. So it's really, um, I always need a little lie down after I do it for a large number of people because you're putting out an enormous amount of energy. Like there's a lot of energy involved in hanging on to that many kids. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, keep it simple so that it's not going to be too difficult for you to kind of like, you need to be able to upscale it, downscale it, do whatever it is that you need to do with it for the number of kids that you're, that you're talking to. Um, so I would say that, that that would be important. Keep it simple. Um, I always, always, always practice my author talks and workshops on my guinea pig classes. And I'm fortunate that I've got, you know, kids who've been through those age groups. So I, I just ring up their school and say, I have a new one. Can I bring it in? And I go in and do it for, you know, right. a class or three classes or, and just, it's really important to practice, to see where you lose your audience, where you don't mm. lose your audience. It allows you to see if it's too complicated because, mm-hmm. you know, I do mine for grades. My sweet spot is grade five and six, but I do go down to grade three and I go up to grade eight. So I do try to practice with different levels because, you know, you need to be able to so see where different. you've got to simplify it. Yeah, and what they need to know and what they don't mm-hmm. need to know. Obviously, I talk a lot more in year eight than I do in grade three. Um, and I've mm-hmm. also now got with my workshops and things, I have some terrific PowerPoint presentations that go with those courtesy of my fabulous sister, Maxabella, who has, you know, created them for me because I've realized in a workshop situation, you need visual stimulation for different types of learners. And, and, you know, you want to be able to reinforce your message with a, with a simple one line take, you know, takeaway behind you on a screen and stuff. So practice, practice, practice um, before you even put yourself in front of a, any kind of audience. And I, I know this is more than three tips, so, you know, take it. I'm sorry about that. Um, and my last tip would be that you need to work on it before you sort of start promoting yourself too widely and, like, getting paid and doing all those sorts of things. You need to do quite a few 
to, to get your rhythm right, to, to get yeah. you the word of mouth going for yourself and to give yourself the confidence that what you are delivering is worth being paid for. Because that's something that I know a lot of authors struggle with, particularly to start with, is that notion yeah. of, you know, are they delivering? Um, but, you know, once you realise that what you're delivering is amazing, um, then 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 you're going to have a lot more confidence to be promoting and, and doing all the different things that you need to do with it. Um, and obviously, like, you've got to have a great book behind you as well. Yes. Like, you really need a great book behind you to be um, – to, to, to get yourself into the kind of level where you're going to start getting, you know, getting paid regularly to do this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. That? Like, that's well. fantastic. Well, as you can tell, Al could go on for another 10 hours about it. <laughs> and I'm so, still but- learning. Like, I'm still learning. I've been doing this for, I've been doing author talks and workshops for about three years now. And I've done them at a whole range. I've done them at festivals. I've done them in schools. I've done them. In, and I'm still, I'm still learning the best ways to do things and I learn from other authors every time I go to a festival I try to catch at least another you know two or three authors doing their thing so that I can see what other people are doing and and how it works and should I be incorporating different things like I saw Oliver Pomeran do his and he does a bit of stand-up comedy uh, comedy work as well and you can see that in his talks and he has this whole range of stuffed animals and like I'm never going to do that that is not Mm -hmm. my style because you've got to work through your own style as well but what I did take away from his was the audience participation level that he has and how he uses that to build his talks into something that the kids rave about, you know? Yes. So um, there's that kind of, of aspect of learning from what other people do. I mean, Andy Griffith's author talk, if you haven't, if you're a children's author and you haven't seen it, look for it on YouTube. I think it's there somewhere. Um, it is so, because obviously we're talking about someone who has been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. It's so yep. relaxed. It's so engaging and kids just adore him. And it's yeah. he's just because he's so um, – he's not – he kind of gets up there in his T-shirt and his jeans and he just sort of like chats away and tells them funny stories and, and they just all, you know, think he's a god. And I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, again, I it's probably not something that I can do but I, 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 I like his relaxed approach and it's probably – it's been quite informative on the way that I go about my talks and things as well. So we're not quite at the 10-hour mark yet, so Sorry. I may as well ask Sorry. another question. Right. And yeah. that is, do most of your author talks come directly through you or to, through your publisher or through some other means, as in the invitations to speak at places? Uh, well, interestingly, they come through. So they come from a, a few different sources now. When I first started out, the first ones that I did came through my publisher. So I, I got, uh, I did sort of five or six when the first Mapmaker book was released, and they were organised by my publisher. And I also went to Somerset um, Literary Festival that year as yes. well, which put me in front of a whole lot of different people who um, also were looking for different people to do festivals and things like that. So the more of that sort of thing you do, the more you get on the radar of the people who organize you know festivals and all of those sorts of different things so um so the first ones came through that then I got the a lot I get quite a few just directly you know people emailing me asking me if I'm available um I I find it it's a bit difficult for me because I have my boys at school still so I'm not I don't do a lot of interstate stuff or anything but if I can get there I do make I do my best to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also now have an agency. So I am represented by the Children's 
bookshop um, speakers agency and that the talk that I did a couple of weeks ago to the teacher librarians was organised through that and I would imagine that I will probably get um, some work out of that down the track because people have now seen me speak, listen to what I have to say. I talked about my books and, and, and what, you know, what I'm trying to achieve with my books. And it, that was an interesting one for me because that's the first time I've ever spoken to a, just an, a purely adult audience, purely about my books. Like generally I'm speaking mm. to adults about writing or, 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 you know, social media or, or something like that, or I'm talking to kids about writing and my books. But this notion of getting up and talking about why I wrote the books, how I wrote the books, you know, the inspiration, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff to a group mm. of adults was just a whole different ball game. So every time you do one, you're sort of having to reassess a little what you're talking about and how you're going to do it. And, um, yeah, so that, that was quite interesting. So that, it, it, word of mouth is now is probably um, one of my biggest sales points now, I guess, because I do have done quite a lot of schools and the librarians have, or the teachers who've organised me have liked what I've done and they've yes. told other people about what I do and, you know, and I get repeat bookings as well. There's a couple of schools that I go to every single year and do yes. a couple of days at, which has been really great. So, yeah, it comes, it's, look, it's, it's like all aspects of writing and publishing. You have to put in a lot, a lot of work and then it's sort of, it's, it builds slowly and it's word of mouth and it's, you know, all of those different things. All right. So, Kate, hopefully you've um, got quite a bit of an answer there for you. <laughs> now, if you have a question that you would like us to answer, then email us podcast at writerscentre.com.au. That's podcast at writerscentre.com.au. Now, let's move on to our interview for this week. Now, our interview is with Anne Tonner, and Anne won the 2015 Finch Memoir Prize, which is absolutely fantastic. Congratulations, Anne. And her book is called Cold Vein. Now, in by day, Anne is a high-achieving human rights lawyer and a mother of four, but this book is a memoir tracking her journey uh, that starts when her 13-year-old daughter, Chloe, stops eating and is diagnosed with anorexia. So it's quite a um, harrowing read, and uh, but, but it is very beautifully written. Now, Anne actually first did uh, our course at the Australian Writers' Centre, Life Writing, and subsequently then went to an, do the Memoir Writing in Paris course with us as well. And it's taken her a little while to get this book out because, as you can imagine, it's not an easy book to write, but she is now committed to her life as a full-time writer. She's addicted. She's got lots of ideas for other books and the proof is in the pudding because she has won the 2017 Finch Memoir Prize. So let's have a listen to Anne. Thanks so much for joining us today, Anne. Not a problem. Right, so your memoir, Cold Vein, has recently come out. Can you tell us what it's about to those listeners who haven't read it yet? Yeah, it's the story. It's a memoir about my daughter's um, anorexia, which she became ill with at the age of 13. And so basically the memoir is talking about our struggle to find effective treatment for her over the next four years and also about the impact of the disease on us as a family. 
Why did you want to write it? Um, look, I'd always, um, I'd always wanted to be, I'd always wanted to write something and this very traumatic time in my life, um, I just felt I had to, to write about it to sort of work through it and come to terms with, with what had happened. But I also, at another level, wanted to write it to try and help people to understand the disease better and to perhaps, you know, um, lead to more effective treatment for anorexia sufferers. Now, it recently won. It won the Finch Memoir Prize. uh, What are your thoughts on that? Um, Well, obviously I'm very glad I entered the Finch Memoir Prize competition. Um, but, um, look, it's been, it's been life changing. I, I guess, um, it's really great to have affirmation of your, your writing. It's the first book that I've ever had published. Um, I, it's been wonderful to sort of work through the editing process and to, you know, to get an idea of, um, how writing that you thought was, um, you know, okay, can be, always be improved. Um, and it's it's fabulous with the launch coming up this week and uh, I've had a lot of positive feedback from people who've read the book, so I don't think my life will ever be the same again. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you think, I'm going through this experience and I am going to write a memoir? Can you take us through that point in your life where you made that decision? Um. Hard to say. I, I didn't actually write anything when I was going through the experience, and the experience went for a long time. It yeah. went for several years. But I did keep a lot of diary entries, and I think part of the reason for that was that, well, one day um, when all of this is over, if it's ever over, um, I will write something because I really want to process this. I want to understand it better, and I want other people to understand it as well. Mm. Um, But it was probably, oh, you know, once things settled down a bit, I thought, well, I wasn't working anymore. I'd had to give up my job um, as a result of having to be a a full-time carer. And I decided that I wanted to write a memoir. Mm. And I did a course at the Australian Writers' Centre with Patty Miller, a life writing course. Um, and that was, that was incredibly helpful and it got me started on the process and the feedback, um, that you get from other people in the course and from the teacher is always so encouraging and makes you think, first of all, you actually can write, you're not completely hopeless, (laughs) um, but also that people are interested in, in your story and encourage you to keep going. So, Yeah. What did you, apart from that support, what did what what were some of the main things that you learnt from the course, or got out of the course, or or you know that were most impactful for you? Um, I think that um, it was probably tapping into memory, um, sensory oh. memory. Yeah, um, a lot of my writing um, comes from that very original memory, I think. Not just, oh, this happened, that happened, but actually really trying to get yourself back into the particular experience that you're trying to write about 
and often that can come about through, in my case, it was um, diary entries. I go back to the diary entries that I made at the time Mm. and try and remember what sort of day it was, what I was wearing, um, and just sort of reliving the experience. So I think we did a lot um, tapping into sensory writing, and I think that helped a lot to you know, to try and make the writing a bit more vivid, to try and make people feel as though they were actually there and experiencing some of the things that I was. Mm. And when you did that course, which was life writing at the Australian Writers' Centre, at that point did you think, you know what, I'm just going to see what comes of my writing and and what comes of this course? Or did you already decide, I'm going to write a book when you enrolled? Um, I think I always wanted to do something with it. I think I always thought, well, the ultimate aim is to present this for publication at some stage. But I wasn't sure how to go about that. Um, I wasn't at all sure how to to write a memoir, what the craft was. Um, And I ended up doing the writing in Paris course as well, um, further down the track. So that was wonderful because you just had that wonderful uninterrupted writing time in such mm-hmm. a fantastic city <laughs> um, and you're taken away from the everyday stuff of life, um, yeah. you know, kids' work, all of that sort of thing. And, and much of the writing of the memoir was in that course, took place in that course um, mm-hmm. as well as the earlier one. Yes. So, yeah, much of much of the memoir is actually based on exercises that we did in the in the writing course and um, and in the various writing groups that developed after the course finished. Now, obviously, you are writing about uh, a period in your life that's quite challenging. What? Mm. Um, how would you describe the writing process? Was it? painful? Was it cathartic? Was it healing? Was it difficult? Was it great? What was it like? It's a bit of everything, really, everything that you just mentioned. Mm. Um, Certainly um, cathartic at times. It was very, when when you've been through a really intense experience, it's always, I always find it really um, a huge release to get it out onto the page. And I think with trauma, it helps to process the experience as well. Um, so something very raw and and um, and terrible, you can make more manageable just by by writing about it. So it was a release in many ways to get it out onto the page. Um, and strangely, I I found it easier to write about the really hard stuff than some of the more mundane stuff Um, because I think those memories were more vivid Mm. and I found getting rid of that stuff enabled me to get on with the rest of the story. So some of the really hard parts were written quite early on. Right. And so what do you think then was the most challenging part of the writing process? If writing about the hard stuff wasn't that hard, (laughs) what was hard? Um, I think you worry. I mean, you always worry with memoir, particularly when it's about family members. Um, Are you exposing them too much? And it's 
very close. It's it's kids and it's husband. And mm. um, so for me, the real struggle was, well, how much of this do I put out there and should I put this out there? And yes. um, in the end, it came down to a sort of, well, a couple of things. Um, I sort of balanced or weighed up the whole equation and thought, well, it's important to tell the story and this will help people. And I can perhaps tell it in a way that, you know, tries to maintain the privacy as much as I can of my, my daughter um, and my other children. So I've changed names and places and that sort of thing. Um, but also it was the kids themselves that said, when are you going to finish that book? <laughs> wow. Um, and... I think I said at one stage, look, I'm just really worried about what people might think of us. Mm. And one of the kids said, well, if you worry about that, mum, you'll never do anything. Yes. So that was sort of the the cattle prod (laughs) that um, spurred me into finishing the book. And later that year I entered it in the the memoir prize. Mm. So when you, even though your kids said that, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, very supportive of them, when you're writing, you are obviously writing about personal things and about real people and those real people, even if you change their names, those people know who they are. Sure. Uh, So what yardstick did you use, if any, to determine, you know what, I'm going to leave that out or I'm going to put it all in there? What, what, how did you work out what to write about or what to include in the final <clears throat> version? Well, um, the final, well, the, the, with the Finch Memoir Prize, there's a word limit that you have to yes. you have to get your you know memoir down to. I think it was eighty or ninety thousand words, mm-hmm. and mine my my memoir when I decided to enter the prize was I think one hundred and sixty thousand. Oh so, wow, that's yeah. So in the end, I lot. had to be absolutely ruthless and just get rid of anything that wasn't essential to the telling of the story. Yes. So um, it was it was a tough process, and I had to let go of things that I you know really laboured over, and parts that I loved um, mm. just had to go. Mm. But um, I just tried to keep it to the you know to the stuff that would tell the story and was really essential, and not stuff that would be um, overstating what I was trying to say. If, as you say, uh, well, you said that um, the writing of it kind of enabled you in some cases to process the trauma. So mm. can you tell me if you had not written your your lived experience, what do you think would have happened? <laughs> would you have not processed the trauma or what do you think you – how do you think you would be if had you not written through it um yeah definitely would not have processed the trauma and made sense of the experience um I think in a way it helped us all as a family to just move on certainly helped Mm. me to move on Mm. and to you know to think about the rest of my life to think about other writing projects I could be doing um it just helped to rule a line under that part of our lives and to just move on and Wow. Um, the next stage. It was, yeah, a very important thing to do. 
not just for me as the writer but for the rest of the family. Yes, yes. And what would you say in terms of the writing process was the most enjoyable part of it, which is kind of a little bit weird question when <laughs> it's uh, you're writing about something so traumatic. Um, but but what, what uh, were there? bits that were enjoyable? Um, well, I think the editing process was, you know, sort of fun because by that stage I'd, I'd done the hard work. Um, mm. I'd, you know, I'd written about the actual writing about the experiences was sometimes tricky because there was a lot to remember and it could yeah. be, you know, quite traumatic. Yeah. Um, but the editing or just getting the word limit down was, was quite fun because I could just sort of sit in a cafe and think, oh, well, that works, that doesn't work. And yes. I think because I've had 30 years of working as a lawyer, I could be quite ruthless in, you know, getting rid of stuff that wasn't, wasn't essential or wasn't important. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it was probably the least stressful. Um, right. But I love, I love the time in Paris as well and, Yes. Just having the time to really, you know, delve into those memories and to to be part of a group with other memoir writers and to get feedback, I think that was really, really helpful to have that one-hour session with Patty Miller yes. um, where she's read the, um, the manuscript that you've done such as it is at that time. Yeah. And to get feedback on, on what's working, what perhaps might not be working. But it was wonderful to, you know, to get to that point and I think that sort of compelled me to go further with it. And when you um, were writing it, the, your, in terms of your the order in which you wrote things, did you write sort of, events in your life as they came to you in no particular order or did you follow some kind of linear pattern or did you just write it however and then put it together like a jigsaw at the end? How did that work? Look, it was definitely a, um, a very um, disorganised. <laughs> um, it was all over the place. So basically it was um, if I was thinking about a particular incident that happened, I thought, well, I write about that, and that could be mm. something that happened right at the end of the journey. Right. It could be something that happened right at the minute, uh, at the very beginning. But it definitely wasn't a linear thing. Mm. Um, but it was all sort of put together at the end, you know, chronological order. Yes. Yeah. And so you are now um, you're you're a human rights lawyer, and yes. you are, t tell us about your day job now. Um, okay, so I work in a um, counselling service for refugees, mm -hmm. um, which sounds a bit weird because I'm a lawyer and not a counsellor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but basically um, my job is to help the clients of the service navigate their way through legal problems that might come up for them. Um, so many of the clients, for many of them, the legal system can be hugely confronting um, because they might be from countries where there was no legal system, the legal system might have broken down completely, or the, leg the legal system could have been the thing that was used to oppress people. Um, so simply to have a, a thing like a parking fine or, um, mm. you know, a, um, a family law issue 
um, might be incredibly difficult for people from refugee backgrounds to cope with. So that's where I just try and give them a bit of a helping hand through that process and um, try and break down some of the fear of the legal system that many of them have. So you mentioned that you have thought of other writing projects. Are you currently working on other writing projects or one have one specific ones in mind? I do. Um, probably got about three or four that I'm working or that I have been working on mm. and I sort of flip between them. Um, what, what kind are they? Are they memoir? Are they, well, give us an idea of what kind of writing projects they are. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thinking of um, another memoir, which is about mm-hmm. growing up in the 1970s in the Blue Mountains. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, but I love um, I love travel writing as well, so I'd really yes. like to to do some of that. And I love um, I love reading um, historical biographies. Right. Uh, so I'd like to sort of – I've got a couple of those in mind as well. Wow. Um, so you, this has really so. given you the taste <laughs> for writing and you want to continue doing more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I have a practice at the moment of writing writing every day, um, usually in the morning before I get to work and start to become um, – to start to get other things in my mind. Yes, um, but no, I, I think I've through the process of doing courses and writing the memoir, I've got to the point where I've made writing part of everyday life rather than, you know, waiting to get time to write. Yes. Um, so I think that's, that's a big change and it's given me ideas for lots of projects and um, a way of, you know, just living as a writer rather than um, – Living as a lawyer, <laughs> I love it. How how yeah. long do you write for every morning, or do you? Is it a time limit? Do you have a word count target? How, how do you determine what time you spend? It's usually determined by how late I am <laughs> and <laughs> what time I got up. But but usually I'll try and get to the gym first for a little while, and um, then I'll be nice and relaxed go to a cafe, get a nice strong cup of coffee and then usually about an hour of just um, sitting at the computer and just seeing what happens and it really sets me up for the rest of the day and I, I just feel if I – on days I don't get to do that, I feel a lot more sort of stressed and, wow. um, yeah. But it's and so just do you write in the cafe or at home? Um, usually in a cafe because um, there's less distraction. I can't go on the internet usually. So, um, yeah, usually in a cafe and that, that's the time of day that suits me best as well. Yeah, uh, right. And, and so what when you uh, – presumably you're writing about one of your three projects – at, at, the, at the moment. So tell me, obviously you've made this a part of your daily life. Um, tell me what feeling you get. Like what's that feeling that makes you compelled to write? What, what's the joy that you get out of, of, of writing these days? Oh, I guess it's um, – I love seeing those connections form between different ideas. Um, because I'm, I'm mainly working on my memoir project at the moment, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's really fascinating to see what, what memory, how memory works. 
and how different memories can come up and often they come up in a sort of sensory way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. It. Mm-hmm. I know that, I know that I'd much rather start the day with writing than just go straight to work and, you know, get straight into the sort of stressful work that I do. Because um, it gives you a sense of relaxation or because you've ticked something off or, or what? I guess it's just another, um, it's an escape from, um, from the rest of life. It's just a space that you give yourself to be creative. Right. And, and that, carries over into many aspects of your your everyday life and gives you um well it certainly gives me a greater sense of well-being and I love it yeah oh good I think it's (laughs) I think it's great that that you're saying it's an escape from life which presumably is what it's doing now because when you were writing your memoir I I imagine it was anything but an escape for life because you were delving deeper into your trauma um Mm. but somehow through that you have now found it to be a great outlet and as you say a a, a stress reliever or or, or an escape is is that right yeah well I guess in the work that I do one of the big risks is that you know because you're listening to stories of terrible yes um, trauma that other people have had um you have to be very careful about vicarious trauma and the risk of Mm-hmm. Um, taking on the trauma of other people. So we're very big where I work on self-care and looking after yourself mm-hmm. and doing things that make you feel good so that you can actually cope with the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think my writing practice has developed as a way of sort of staving off the vi- the risk of vicarious trauma, that mm-hmm. um, I do something that makes me feel good, that's creative, and, and um, then I can cope with everything else. I love it and uh, I think that's great and I think that everyone should do that. So on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Anne. Thank you, Valerie. There you go, Anne Tonner and her book, Cold Vein. Oh, I just think it's amazing, you know, she's gone from doing a course to winning this incredibly winning. prestigious prize. I, 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 you know, go Anne, that's all yeah, I can say. Very prestigious, amazing. absolutely. Congratulations to Anne. Uh, and, we're, well, this is our mini-sode, Al, so this brings us to the end of this week's episode. Where do we find you online? <laughs> Despite the fact that I talk for so long, it's <laughs> actually just a mini-sode. Um, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to connect with me on Facebook. I'm the Valerie Koo that lives in Sydney. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes and links to anything that we've mentioned in the podcast at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.